Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. We're continuing in our Sunday morning series on Isaiah 53. This morning, our text is Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. And the title of the message this morning is The Scorned Servant. Please enjoy. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 this morning. And uh, we're going to continue continue on that, Isaiah 53. And uh, we are going through this chapter and uh, we're going to spend the next now four weeks. Um, this is a five week series and it could be 10, it could be 15, it could be 20, because this is just a big treasure trove of biblical truth in Isaiah 53. So much biblical truth in this chapter, in this prophecy and we could spend weeks upon weeks in it, but we're going to spend some time in it right up into Resurrection Sunday. And um, I just love this chapter, and I think it's so important. And so if you have your places in Isaiah 53, I'm going to ask you one last time to please stand if you're physically able and respect and reverence to the Word of God. We're just going to read the first three verses this morning. Isaiah 53 and verse number one, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. The title of the message this morning is The Scorned Servant. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I do pray that you're with us today. I pray the Holy Spirit would be in this place. You would fill this place with your power, with your presence. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be closer to Christ and be more Christ-like, and Lord, just think about the sacrifice that you, you made for us. Lord, be with us as we study the Scripture this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. I really, really want this chapter ingrained in us. So what I want to do is I want to finish reading the chapter. So let's pick back up in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. 
His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him and putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear, bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I want that chapter ingrained in us. I want it inside of us. I want, it, I want us to hide that chapter inside of our hearts. I want us to meditate on that chapter and the words in that chapter every single day for the next few weeks heading up to, to Resurrection Sunday. And I want this chapter to be a part of our lives. And, and, it, and it has been for those, of, for those of us who know this chapter. We love this chapter. We read this chapter. We know what this chapter is about. And this chapter brings us so much joy because we know what the chapter is. We know what the chapter means. We know what the chapter points to. But I want to tell you today that this is not a happy song. This is a sad song. This is a sad confession. This is a sad mourning. This is a sad lamentation. This is a lament. I want to explain to you this morning that many people will turn to Christ. Many people will put their faith in Christ. Many kindreds, many peoples, people of many tongues, people of many nations will be saved because of Jesus of Nazareth, because of His redemptive work on the cross of Calvary, many people will come to a saving knowledge of Christ, but only one nation will be saved. There will be many people from many different nations and many different kindreds and many different tongues, but only one nation will be saved. And that is the nation of Israel. And when they turn to Christ, one day, and they will. They reject him now. One day they will turn back to Christ. When they turn to Christ, this will be their song. When they turn back to Christ, this will be their confession. This will be their mourning. This will be their lament. I want you to notice something very fascinating about the verbs in this chapter. Let's, let's read some of the verbs. Was oppressed was afflicted, did not open. He is led to the uh, slaughter, did not open his mouth. All of these are in the past tense. They're all in the past tense. Now, this is a prophecy. It is looking forward 700 years to the cross of Calvary, but that's not how it's written. It's not written from Isaiah's time looking forward to the cross. It's written 
to Israel in the future when they repent and look back to the cross. That's the perspective that it's written. It's written as Israel repents. It's written as the Isaiah 53 is the salvation of Israel. And one day when they are saved and they do repent and they do turn back to Christ, they will turn and look back to the cross and this will be their song. See, the rejection of their Messiah was foretold 700 years before Christ walked the earth. But one day they will look back and this Isaiah 53 will be their lament. In 2009, there was a man named James Howell. James Howell was digging around on the internet and he started finding these things. There was some buzz out about these things, but there wasn't much buzz. He started finding these things on the internet called bitcoins. And so what he would do is he would search through all this data on the internet and it would find a Bitcoin over here and buy it. And he would find a Bitcoin over here and buy it. And he was searching on the internet, searching through all this data, tippy-tappy on the laptop. And after a few weeks, he had collected about $50 worth of Bitcoins. Now, at the time, his girlfriend could not stand the tippy-tappy on the laptop and begged him to quit, so he stopped at $50 worth of bitcoins. He closed his laptop, and he put it to the side, and he stopped looking for them. A couple years later, he spilled lemonade on that laptop and threw the laptop away, but kept the hard drive. He kept the hard drive. A couple years later, he was doing some spring cleaning and he come across the hard drive and he put it over the trash can and something in the back of his mind said, do not throw that away. But he did it anyway and he threw it away. A couple years later, Bitcoin took off and the $50 that he spent on those Bitcoins at its height was worth $7.3 million. And it was in a landfill somewhere. Talk about crying over spilt milk. And do you know what Isaiah 53 is? It is the Jews crying over spilt milk. They will look back one day and they will say, what in the world did we do? Yes, this chapter speaks of the cross, but it does so in retrospect when the Jews finally turn from their rejection of Christ. Let me tell you something about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 has upset Jews for hundreds of years. Isaiah 53 has upset Jews for, for millennia. And, and uh, they have, they have for hundreds of years, it has troubled them. It has upset them. And I will tell you, it has upset, upset them to the point in most synagogues, in the normal reading of the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 is just skipped. They just skip it. They don't even read it because they know who it points to. And even the rabbis that do read it, you know what they say? They say, oh, the suffering servant? That's Israel. You see, they say that Israel is the suffering servant because for so many years, people have come after Israel and have tried to kill Israel and destroy Israel and annihilate Israel and wipe Israel off the face of the map. And so they say, oh, we are the suffering servant. 
Two problems with that. Number one, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is an innocent servant. And Israel's not innocent. But number two, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is also a voluntary servant. A voluntary servant. Israel's not voluntary. If they had their choice, they wouldn't be going through the suffering that they're going through. So Israel is not this suffering servant. They're not innocent and they're not voluntary. You know what the Jews wanted? The Jews wanted a king. The Jews want a king to be delivered from their circumstances. They want a king to deliver them from their enemies. They want a king to deliver them from uh, from their suffering. But the very last thing that the Jews wanted was a king to come and deliver them from their sin. And that's what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to deliver them from Rome. He didn't come to deliver them from their circumstances or their suffering. No, he came to deliver them from their sin. You know, you could read this chapter to a Jew today without giving them the reference to it. And then after you read the chapter, you can ask him, who's that talking about? Most will say, oh, that's talking about Jesus. And then you ask him, where in the Bible do you think that is? They'll say, most will say the Gospels. This has been done before. This experiment has been done before. And they'll say the Gospels. And they're absolutely flabbergasted when you tell them, no, it's in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. There are 30 references to this chapter in the Gospels alone. There's 50 references in the New Testament. And still they don't believe. And what we're going to do today We're going to look at the first three verses of this chapter and we're going to see why the Jews don't believe. Why do the Jews not believe? We're going to look at that this morning. I want you to understand that only 10% of Jews today are Orthodox Jews. What that means is that they're practicing Jews, they understand the scripture, they know the Old Testament, they know the scripture, they study it, they care about it. That's only about 10% of Jews today. 90% of Jews today don't really care. 90% of Jews today are indifferent to scripture. Most know nothing of the Old Testament, know nothing of Isaiah, and, and know nothing of Isaiah 53. Most 90% of Jews today do not believe in prophecy. They do not believe in sin. They do not believe in the depravity of man, that man can do no good. They do not believe in atonement. They do not believe in sacrifice. They do not even believe in bloodshed. 90% of Jews today could care less whether the temple's even rebuilt or not. But you know what? You can't, so that means you can't assume when you talk to a Jew about Jesus, you can't assume that they've ever heard Isaiah 53. You can't do that because nine times out of 10, they have not heard about Isaiah 53. This is still my introduction, but this brings us into verse number one, which says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord Revealed. Let's look at that first word. Who has believed our message? 
I want you to remember as you read through this verse that this, this just chapter, this chapter is written from the perspective of the Jews looking back. What's going to happen one day is Jesus is going to come in the rapture and Jesus is going to take his church out of this world. Once Jesus takes his church out of this world and he comes for his bride, there'll be a seven-year tribulation on this planet. That seven-year tribulation is for the Jews. And what that seven-year tribulation is going to do, it's going to knock some sense into the Jews. It's going to knock some sense into Israel. They're going to finally wake up, realize what they've done, and then this chapter is going to be their song. This verse that we just read, verse 1, is repeated in John 12, 38. See, what had happened is Jesus had showed them all the signs. Jesus had showed them all the miracles. He had done all these things, and still they would not believe. They would not believe after the signs. They would not believe after the miracles. They rejected him. But yes, they did reject him. But you know what else John 12 goes on to say? Even though they rejected Christ, John 12 goes on to say that God blinded them. That God hardened their hearts. You know what that shows me? That you can only reject God so long. You can only say no to God so long before God says, okay, That's enough. Now I'm taking your opportunity away. Now I'm taking your opportunity away. And the nation of Israel had said no to God generation after generation after generation until God said, okay, I'm done. I'm taking your opportunity away. I'm blinding you. I'm hardening your hearts. That's enough. Who has believed our message? Believe? Believe on this guy? This guy who's marred more than, every, than any other man? He's not the Messiah. He can't save us. He can't even save himself. And he's going to save us? This will be their confession. This will be their lament. They will say, oh, why didn't we believe it? It would have saved us so much pain. It would have saved us so much heartache. It would have saved us so many lost souls if we'd have just believed. Who has believed our message? Who brought this message to the Jews? Was it the Gentiles? No, it wasn't the Gentiles. Did angels come down? No, Michael and Gabriel didn't come down and give it to him. So who gave this message to the Jews? Well, Moses was a Jew. The prophets were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were were Jews. This was a Jewish message given to the Jews by Jews, and the Jews rejected it. The Jews rejected it. I want you to think about this. Every This is is an amazing thought. Every single Jew that has ever lived since Christ has been taught the name of Jesus. 
They might not know Isaiah 53, but every single solitary last one of them knows who Jesus is. Why? Because they are taught to reject him. They are taught. They might not know Isaiah 53, but they know the name of Jesus more than most Americans do, comparatively speaking. Because every last one of the Jews that has ever been born since Christ has been taught Jesus so that they can reject him. Who has believed our message? What is this message? What is the message that they didn't believe? It's the gospel. It's the death. It's the burial. It's the resurrection of Jesus. It's the story that sin can be forgiven. It can be washed away. We can be made righteous before God. And, and, and it's not based on our works. And it's not based on our performance. But it's, it's based on Christ's redemptive work on the cross. The Holy Spirit of the eternal God can come inside of me and live in me for all of eternity. And I am saved from eternal separation from that God. I am saved from a devil's hell and forever I will be with him in glory. That's the message that they rejected. Let's look at the rest of the verse. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Let's talk about the arm of the Lord. Isaiah 33, 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm of strength every morning, our salvation in the time of distress. Isaiah 40, 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with might and with his arm ruling for him. The arm of God is his power. It's his might. It's his strength, okay? Old Hulk Hogan used to say, 24-inch pythons, brother. You know, the arm of the Lord, the power, the strength. Let me tell you something. Jesus, he may appear weak in his suffering, but I want to I, I I explain something to, to us. Jesus' suffering doesn't show his weakness. Jesus' suffering shows us how strong He really is. It shows us how strong He really is. He could have called a legion of angels to take Him off that cross. He didn't need a legion of angels. He could have thought the thought and He would have come off that cross. Do you know how much strength it takes to go through suffering when you don't have to? That is not weakness. That is strength. And I can't hold still for my wife to put an eye drop in my eye. You know? I, I, can't, I can't even do that. But it takes strength. It takes strength to go through suffering when you don't have to. His suffering does not show his weakness. His suffering shows his strength. But in the New Testament... I want you to understand that the New Testament reveals to us what the power of God is. It reveals to us what the might of God is. It reveals to us what the strength of God is. In Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek 
1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. The gospel is the power. The gospel is the strength. The gospel is the might. The message is the arm of the Lord. That blessed message. That blessed message that saves you. That blessed message that seals you. That blessed message that sanctifies you. But he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. They did not receive him. Why didn't they receive him? Well, the answer to that's in Romans 10, 3. Let me read that for you. It's talking about the Jews. Romans 10, 1 is my brother, my prayer for Israel is they might be saved. So this is talking about Israel. Romans 10, 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness, listen to this, and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I'm doing a personal study right now. on It's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. And the Hebrew Roots Movement is this group of people who believe in salvation by grace through faith through Jesus. And, but then they believe that after you get saved, you should hold all Old Testament law. Okay, You should still practice all the ceremonial stuff, watch the Sabbath, all the dietary restrictions. You should still do all that. And, uh, and they try to say that the New Testament even teaches that, which it doesn't. And I'm studying that right now. And it's real interesting that Paul even said, Paul says that, look, if somebody believes that, it's not, you don't have to jump on. In fact, even Paul sometimes, he would obey the law so he could reach the Jews. Timothy didn't have to be circumcised, but he did because he had a Jewish mother. And there were Jews that wouldn't even listen to him speak because he was uncircumcised and he had a Jewish mother. OK, so, uh, you know, so so Paul would even sometimes he would obey the law and then sometimes he wouldn't like he would. He, he would said, I have to get to Pentecost because he knew that a lot of people were coming to Pentecost and he could preach to it. But earlier in the scripture, in the Acts, he had missed Passover. OK, so he would hold to the laws to reach people and then sometimes he wouldn't. So but this verse clearly says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So that means I don't, I don't the law for right. I don't have to follow the law for righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. OK, I don't have to hold to that old ceremonial law. That's just a little piece of my study. That's what I'm studying. But, but this says right here that they sought, that the Jews are seeking to establish their own righteousness. And they did not subject, subject themselves to the righteousness of God, which is Christ. They wouldn't do that, okay? So the Jews, they believe in self righteousness, they were dependent on their because we're Jewish, and if we keep going through the motions of the law, and we don't work on Saturday, and we don't eat pork, and we eat things that are kosher, 
will be okay. It's a self-righteousness. So because they believed in self-righteousness, they wanted a king to help them with their suffering. That's what they wanted a king for. They wanted a king to deal with their suffering, not their sin. But let me tell you today, Jesus did not come to save them from their suffering. Jesus came to save them from their sin. That is the reason why he came. So then we get into the body of the message. Verses 2 and 3 gives us three reasons why they didn't believe, why they rejected him. Here's reason number one. He had a contemptible origin. He had a contemptible origin. Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Isaiah is using language right here, a tender shoot, a root out of a parched ground. Okay, you have to understand that the Jews at the time were an agrarian society. These are a society of farmers. These are farmers. So he's using language that they would understand. Okay, a tender shoot, something that shoots up over there. It's separate from the rest of the crop. It's just a little sprig. It's one of those seeds that gets washed into the ditch and shoots up in the ditch. It's separate from, from everybody else. And uh, it's just out there. It's, it's, and, and what they're saying when they're saying this is the Jews are saying he is a nobody from nowhere. He is irrelevant. He is insignificant. He is inconsequential. He's random. He's meaningless. He's useless. He's unimportant. He come from an insignificant family, Mary and Joseph. Who was Mary and Joseph? He come from an insignificant town, Nazareth. Talk about backwater, podunk, people still living in caves. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay. And insignificant places where he was born. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in an inn. In a stable at the inn. And they put him in a feed trough. You don't put messiahs in a feed trough. You don't put royal kings in a feed trough. He had an insignificant audience. I want you to understand that when the shepherds came and witnessed his birth, the shepherds are the lowest on the totem pole. They're the lowest people on the social structure of the Jewish nation. He wasn't royalty. He had no pedigree. He had no education. He had been a carpenter for 30 years. His followers were insignificant. Not one priest, not one Pharisee, not one Sadducee, not one scribe among them. Oh, he may have had some secret disciples that had some position, but nothing that the public knew about. They were a ragtag group of fishermen, a tax collector, a terrorist. Oh, yeah, he had had an ex-prostitute following him, too. He had no money. He had no home. He had no property. He ate in fellowship with the lowest class of people, publicans and sinners. He condemned the religious leaders. And while he was alive, his own brothers didn't even believe. His own family didn't even believe in him. He was a nobody 
from nowhere. And like a root out of a parched ground. They looked at him like a dry, brown, crusty, worthless root sticking out of the ground during a drought. You know, during a drought, you're only going to water the plants that are important. Your grass may turn ground, but your impatience aren't. Okay? Your grass may turn ground, but them ferns, the ferns are going to get the water. Okay? The ferns are going to get the water. They didn't water him because he was unimportant to them. You know, in Mark's chapter 6, Jesus would come and preach in his hometown. And once again, when Jesus got up and preached, he astonished everybody. He shocked everybody. He stunned everybody. But you know what? You know what? You know what his people did in his hometown? Instead of taking to heart his message on its own merit, they began to look at his background. They looked at his background and they said, hey, isn't, isn't this the carpenter? Obadiah, didn't he build your set a couple years ago? Man, don't we have, his, don't we have his, his mother and his sisters and his brethren with us? Don't we, don't we have them? Are they with us today? And based on his ancestry and based on his background and based on his influence, they rejected him. Let me tell you something today, Christian. Let me tell you something today. If you speak with the authority of the word of God, if you speak with the authority of Christ, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter who you hurt. It doesn't matter how long you've been gone or what your background is. The message gives you authority. So now that we've talked about the root, let's talk about the parched ground. Let's talk about the dry ground. Galilee. Galilee was monetarily poor. Galilee was spiritually poor. Galilee was politically poor. It was a dry ground. But I'm here to tell you something today, Christian. God can do amazing things with a dry ground. He can do amazing things with a dry ground. And you know what? Never write off your field of service. And I'm not talking about a foreign field. I'm talking about a domestic field. I'm talking about the community that our church is in. Never write off your field. It doesn't matter if people are apathetic towards the gospel. It doesn't matter if you think people could care less about living the Christian life. Bless God, none of that matters. You keep praying. You keep preaching. You keep playing. Plowing. You, you keep plowing. You cry. You sweat. You bleed. But you keep on plowing. You may get tired. You may get hungry. You may be, get fatigued. But you keep on plowing. Satan may come at you. Your enemies may try to fight you. Your loved ones may try to stab you in the back. But bless God, you keep on plowing. God can do anything with a dry ground. Never think that a place is worthless. Oh, nobody cares anymore. Nobody, bless God, you keep plowing. You plow that whole field, and when you get, down, get done, you turn that donkey around, and you plow it again. Number two, he had a contemptible life. Verse two, 
He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There's that word appearance. Remember King Saul? Do you remember why they picked King Saul? Because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was taller than everybody else, and that's why they picked him. But Kenneth, you could have been king of Israel. Okay? They, they picked him based off of his appearance, and look how that turned out for them. You know, prophetically, Isaiah gives us a very, a very compelling description of Christ, even more so than the Gospels do. Okay? Even more so than the Gospels do. You see, Jesus did not have any remarkable beauty, okay? He didn't have any physical attractiveness. Your, ver your translation may say comeliness. That's what that means. That doesn't mean he was ugly, but it means he did not have the advantage of good looks. Jesus was not the captain of the football team. Jesus was not the prom king. Jesus was the awkward kid in the lunchroom that sat by himself. He didn't sit by himself out of choice. He sat by himself because the bullies rejected him. That's who Jesus is. I saw a video of an artist attempt to paint an authentic picture of Christ. And she's a very talented lady. Very talented. Um, and I applaud her intentions, okay, because the portrait of Christ going around, you know Jesus wasn't white, right? Jesus wasn't white. He didn't have straightened hair, okay? Jesus was Middle Eastern, okay? The, the Bible says that his skin was, was olive tint. He had an olive-colored skin, okay? But what she tried to do is when she painted this picture of Jesus, she said, oh, I pictured Jesus was a very attractive man. I pictured Jesus was very approachable. And while I applaud her intention, I beg to differ on a couple of points there. In appearance, Jesus was very unremarkable. He was very unremarkable in appearance, let me tell you something about God. God loves the gift wrap of the unremarkable. He thrives off that. He loves that. God can use anybody, but he loves the gift wrap of the unremarkable. So when you reject somebody or something based on appearance, you're, you're not thinking with the mind of Christ. Because does God look on the outward appearance? No, God looks on the inside of a person. And while I'm not Christ and I can't fully look on the inside, I'm going to do my best because I know I'm not supposed to look on the, out, on the outside. I'm not supposed to look on, on things. Ooh, what's he got on? What's he wearing? How's he got his hair? What's that tattoo over there? That's not how Jesus looks at people. He doesn't look at people like that, okay? He doesn't do it. Number three, a contemptible end. Verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Despised in that verse twice. He was doubly despised. I want you to remember, I want to remind you that the Jews, they believed in self-righteousness. So guess what? When they saw his death, when they saw his humiliation, 
when they saw his nakedness, when they saw his bruises, when they saw the spit on his body that had been spit on him, when they saw the thorns dug into his flesh, they saw the meat hanging from his bones, the blood pouring from his wounds, when they saw the agony that was inflicted upon him, they saw all of it. It should have reminded them of something. It should have reminded them about a story of a dad named Abraham who brought his son Isaac to the top of a mount, a stone's throw away from where they were standing. It should have reminded them about a son who willingly laid down for the father. It should have reminded them of a God who provided a sacrifice. It should have reminded them of blood that was shed and sin that was atoned for. They saw it. It should have reminded them of the Passover lamb. It should have reminded them of the rituals and the festivals and the feasts that they did year after year after year. But it didn't. He was despised and forsaken of men. That word men in that verse in the Hebrew it denotes leadership. Okay? It was the leaders that called for his blood. In John chapter 7, the Pharisees sent officers to, to collect Jesus, to apprehend Jesus. When the officers got there, they heard Jesus preach. And you know, Jesus, man, when he preaches, man, he astonished people. He shocked people. He'd been shocking people since he was 12 years old with his preaching. And Jesus shocked them and couldn't, they, they were just so shocked at his preaching and so astonished that they went back to the Pharisees empty-handed and they said, how come you, don't, how come you didn't bring Jesus? And they said to the Pharisees, no man has ever spoken like this guy. No man, nobody has ever said anything. Nobody has ever spoke how this guy speaks. And the Pharisees said, you have not also been led astray, have you? And then they said, none of the rulers or Pharisees believes in him. You see, the officers, they knew something was different. But you know what they did? They deferred to their leadership. They deferred to their leadership. Because they said no one important believed in him. Christian, I tell you today, obey your leaders till they turn their back on Christ. Obey your leaders until they turn their back on Christ and they tell you to go against this book, go against the word of God. Obey your leaders until it gets to that point. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You know, Jesus wasn't the life of the party, but he wasn't just some guy that just walked around just you know, like sad all the time. I mean, the Bible does say that Jesus did rejoice. OK, he did he knew how to rejoice. OK, but the thing about it is that Jesus, for the most part, was a broken hearted man. He was broken hearted. He cried and he wept over Israel. Now, I will say this. His sorrow is not like our sorrow. Our sorrow is self-pity. It's self-pity. His sorrow was for others. He was sorrowful for the fallen. 
He was sorrowful for those who he knew would reject him. And like one from whom men hid their face. Jesus had no physical attractiveness. He had no charisma. And in the end, he was marred more than any other man. So what did they do? They withdrew from him. They doubly despised him. And in his death, his death was so much humiliation. His death was so much disgrace. It was hard to look at. Let me tell you something about Jesus' death. Jesus' death was a train wreck. Jesus' death was was a catastrophe. And no doubt it was hard to watch. And no doubt there were people on that hill that day that turned their heads because they just couldn't stand the sight of it anymore. He was despised and we did not esteem him. You know what that means? We did not esteem him. It means we considered him a nobody from nowhere who could do nothing. I want to tell you something. We know the name of Jesus is Yeshua. And we say Yeshua. The Jews don't call him Yeshua anymore. They call him Yeshu. Yeshu has become today, has become known as despised. So they call him a word that means today despised. Once again, Isaiah 53, fulfilling a prophecy. The Jews, they turned their back on him because of his shame. You know what? Don't make the same mistake that the Jews did. Romans 1.16, one more time. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. At the end of the service this morning, I want to bring your attention to one quick sermon that, pre- that Peter preached in Acts. In Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching to the Jews, and he says in Acts 3.13, listen to that Peter as he preaches to the Jews. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom ye see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him his perfect health and the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that Christ would suffer has thus fulfilled. Isaiah 53. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. Peter looks at the Jews and says, you killed the Messiah. You killed him. 
You destroyed him. But it's not too late. He's not done with you. Repent. Christian, I got to tell you something. We have something in common with the Jews. We killed him too. We killed him too. Our sin nailed him to that cross. Our sin did it. It's time, if you've never repented, if you've never accepted that sacrifice, if you've never accepted that forgiveness, it's time to do that. Here's what I want for the invitation today. For the invitation, as you stand in your seat, with your eyes closed, and as the music plays, here's what I want you to do. I want you to meditate. Meditate is a Bible word. I want you to reflect, and I want you to meditate on his sacrifice. I want you to think about what Jesus did for me and you on the cross and the great gift of salvation that that brings and all the benefits and all the promises and all the great things and all the promises to be with the loved ones again and Jesus to fill our lives and to sanctify us with the gospel and the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about what he went through. I want you to think about and reflect and meditate on all the pain and all the agony and all the, all the discouragement and all the humiliation that he felt on the cross. I want you to reflect on that this morning. Because he wants, because the gospel isn't just to save you. Christians reflect on the gospel all through their Christian lives to help them be more Christ-like.